Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your fun source for rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode, Laura clues us in on her thoughts about Decrypto. Kat invites us back to the Wordslam party started by Mason in episode 22. I try to keep the enemies at bay in Pandemic Fall of Rome. But Mason gets us back on the right path in Indigo before Sarah closes the episode out with Black Sonata. Hi everyone, it's Laura. A few years ago, I devoured the TV series Bletchley Circle, which was about a group of women who were codebreakers in World War II. Up until then, I didn't know much about that part of history, and I found it fascinating how militaries would broadcast coded messages over the airwaves and foreign governments would attempt to intercept and decode them. So as soon as I heard there was a board game built around that theme, where you'd actually get to take on the role of codebreaker, I pre-ordered it. Designed by Thomas Dagenet L'Esperance and published in 2018 by Yellow, Decrypto is a word game where two teams compete to see who's better at creating and cracking codes. The first team to successfully decipher two of the other team's codes takes the victory. At the start of the game, each team gets four words, which they slide into slots numbered one to four on a cardboard screen. These words stay the same for the entire game and are only visible to that team. At the start of each round, each team picks someone to be their encryptor, the person who will write the clues and that person draws a card with a three-digit code. For example, if the card said 321, the encryptor would write a clue for the word in the number three slot, then a clue for the word in the number two slot, then one for the number one slot. The encryptor then reads their clues out loud, and both teams, starting with the opposing team, attempt to guess the three-digit code. Of course, the encryptor's team has the advantage because they know what the words are, while the opposing team has to rely on past clues to see if they can find a pattern. And that's what Decrypto is all about patterns. You have a double-sided note sheet where you write down everything. On one side, you track the opposing team's clues and scan for patterns. On the other side, you track your team's clues and try to avoid patterns when it's your turn to be the encryptor. You want to be creative, but not too obscure, because if either team fails to decipher their own codes twice in a game, they lose. And I have to say, it's tough to be the encryptor. Sometimes you think you're giving the perfect clue, but your team just doesn't get the reference. And even more frequently, you just go blank. Because both encryptors write down their clues at the same time, and the first to finish flips a timer. Maybe your three-digit code is 421, and you can only think of a good clue for word number four. You're scanning through the note sheet, seeing the patterns that have already emerged for the other two words, and you can't think of a single clue that won't fit those patterns. Time is running out, and so you scribble something down, hoping you didn't just lose the game for your team. For example, let's say the word in slot number two is sheep, and your team already gave the clues animal and wool. If the next clue you give for number two is lamb, the other team will likely guess that number. So what clues could your team have used instead? Maybe embarrassed, since that's one of the meanings of sheepish. Or a follower, referring to how sheep behave. Or maybe you could give the clue helps you fall asleep and hope your teammates get the reference to counting sheep. What I appreciate about Decrypto is that there are very few restrictions on clues. You can use proper nouns, lyrics, a whole sentence, pretty much whatever you want, as long as it's public information. Also, your clue has to refer to the meaning of the word, not its number, spelling, sound, etc. In terms of how the game plays, Decrypto tends to be a slow burn. In the first few rounds, you don't have enough information to successfully intercept messages, and people are taking their time figuring out the game and thinking up clues. But by round five or six, things get tense. The opposing team is probably catching on to at least one or two of your words, and you're probably running out of clever clues by now. This part of the game is also exciting because you now have enough information to spot patterns. Unlike a lot of other deduction games, this isn't a simple process of elimination. 
You're cracking real codes created by real humans sitting across the table from you who are doing their best to throw you off. When you successfully intercept their code, it feels so good. You're celebrating with your team, high fives all around. Maybe you're the one who cracked an especially tough clue and you humbly deflect praise from your teammates while secretly wondering if you actually might be a genius. Then one round later, you give a clue to your team only to realize it could apply to two or more of your words, so they guess the wrong number. This happens a lot, by the way. Instead of feeling like a genius, you now want to hide under the table. The highs and lows of Decrypto are what make it so fun, and I think that's why a bunch of people have said it replaced codenames for them. But it doesn't for me. Codenames is a low investment. It's mellow, easy to teach, and plays in about 20 minutes. It might not offer the same level of excitement as Decrypto, but it stays consistently engaging from start to finish. Decrypto has a good amount of downtime, can take over an hour, and is tough to teach. So I have to really want to play it to pull it off the shelf. If you're not familiar with Codenames, check out episode 18, where Mike reviews the cooperative version of it, Codenames Duet. Decrypto costs about 20 US dollars and comes with 440 words. So there's a lot of replayability there. It features artwork by Fabien Faucheron, Nicolas Rivet, who is credited as Nils, and Manuel Sanchez. Yellow is known for great artwork and component quality, and this game is no exception. The art is retro and fun, evocative of old-timey spy equipment. So in terms of whether I recommend it, you're probably not going to have much luck convincing non-gamers to play Decrypto, unless they happen to be really into word games. But if you do have a group who's willing to invest an hour playing a tense, thinky word game, I bet you'll enjoy this one. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. Growing up, I, like many other gamers, enjoyed a steady diet of party games. Playing with family and friends, it was delightful to have games that we could all enjoy together, young and old, all at the same table. Since 2012, I've become obsessed with thinky, puzzly Euros, quietly played at a table of four or less. Still, when visiting friends and family, the limitations of our small player count game library becomes apparent. For this reason, I occasionally dip my toes into the world of party games and every once in a while one will come along that is so dazzlingly brilliant that it will knock my socks off. Word Slam is such a party game. It seems like the amazing Inca and Marcus Brandt can do no wrong. From the exit the game Escape Games in a Box, to heavier fair-like village Raja of the Ganges, and the stellar expansion Orleans Invasion, they have developed quite the list of accomplishments. As Euro Game Design Royalty, when I heard they were branching out and creating a party game, I was all in. Word Slam gameplay is simple. There are two teams, each with a clue giver, who will race to get a member of their team to say a shared word first. Each team has a massive pile of small cards, each with a single word on it. Words are color-coded roughly by purpose, verbs, nouns, adjectives, etc. Each team also has two card trays in front of them to hold these word clues. A deck of large cards with green, yellow, red, and black backs, denoting difficulty, sits off to the side until the two clue givers are chosen, one from each team. They will select a card of the difficulty level of their choice, roll the d6, and each look at the corresponding numbered word on the chosen card. Once both have looked at the card, the one clue giver says, Word! to show their readiness, and the other says, Slam! after which both can start placing words on the card trays. There are many different ways to proceed. My husband is a fan of collecting cards into his hand, not showing them to the guessers until he has them in a predefined order, 
and can present them effectively without drawing people into tangents. I prefer an organic method, starting with a word and surrounding it with as many clue words as I can to try to encapsulate multiple meanings if possible. The brilliance of word slam is the nuance of language and the clever shortcuts you find to say something. It is hard to miss that big, gray animal is an elephant. Harder concepts often require much more thought and idea building. If the clue giver gave the following clues, music, big, circle, turn, and added to the second tray, child, sit, on, animal, up, down, you would be right if you guessed the answer was carousel. The team that guesses the word correctly first wins the round. The best thing about Word Slam is fairly often no one cares who wins, particularly. Instead, after a difficult round, each team wants to know what clues the other team had to guess the answer. We will often go to great lengths to balance the teams as much as possible, switching partners and clue givers so that every round is a nail biter. Word Slam might be the best example of metacognition as sport, a game of thinking to communicate thinking. Some people are savants at this game. When faced with the clues, green plant place, they will immediately say garden, and the round will be over within seconds. But trying to get anyone to guess some of the more difficult clues, like intersection, could take 20 minutes of careful word manipulation. Listening to the two teams send each other off on unfruitful tangents, or having neither clue giver able to come up with a legitimate way to communicate luxury, ends up putting the two teams in a cooperative competitive cycle where Listening to the other team might be more useful than paying attention to your own. Word Slam comes in a large box containing minimal components. A couple plastic card trays, several decks of cards, and a single six-sided die. And aside to the publisher Cosmos, a smaller box and tighter packaging would have been appreciated. The term non-functional slack fill definitely applies to the contents of this box. In 2018, Cosmos published Word Slam Family, which I have not played. It comes with a different set of clue cards and a much smaller box, so this might be a small shelf alternative for you if shameless box size is a concern for your home. And there you have it. My only complaint, box size. That's it. Other than that, this game is amazing. It's fun, it's easy to teach, and it provides the gold standard quality of a great party game. It allows you to learn to communicate differently and to gain a new perspective on communication itself. Okay, wait. I do have one other complaint. It's that I can't play with only two players. I can't tell you how many times I've had a hankering to jump in with my pile of cards on a rainy, lonely night. Oh well, guess I better throw more parties. If you would like to share your favorite word slam moment with me, I would love to hear them. You can contact me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. All right, people, let's do this one last time. My name is Mike Risley, and for the past three years, I've covered the special pandemic editions for the 5 by Maybe too much. This year is Pandemic Fall of Rome, and that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Fall of Rome. Just picture it. Images of vandals and goths, the sacking of Rome. Sounds exciting, right? Danger and excitement and corruption and emperors gone mad with power, dressed in lion skins and changing geopolitical climates. So less exciting, right? But still kind of exciting? Well, it's complicated. Look, if you haven't played Base Pandemic, then you're lucky. Seriously, it's a classic for a reason, and I envy your first plays. Sadly, our closest base coverage is my segment on Pandemic Iberia in episode 16. It's cooperative. Diseases are spreading across the globe. You're trying to stop it. It's stressful. Go play it. Fall of Rome is, well, placed near the Fall of Rome. 
You're playing as the Empire trying desperately to hold it together for just a little bit longer. The cracks are beginning to show, literally and figuratively. You're playing as senators, merchants, military people, or a Vestal trying to keep Rome's enemies at bay just a little bit longer. And while I applaud Matt Leacock, Paolo Maori, and Z-Man Games for adding a little variety and not going straight for everyone as a senator or military man route, even working in women in a Vestal role, come on. By the 5th century, the Roman Empire was an expansive place that had leaders from all around the known world, including the Middle East and Northern Africa. Not everyone was the same shade of pasty white pink as all these roll cards. We can and should do better. Much better. Alright, in this game there are five tribes vying to sack Rome. Well, sort of. At this point we're talking the Roman Empire, more than just Rome. So while yes, most paths do lead to Rome eventually, you still care even when they don't. And while you aren't just playing as military men, this game is solely about staving off a military defeat. You will lose if you are unable to add more barbarian cubes to the board, if you run out of cards in the draw deck, i.e. you took too long dealing with the military problems, the decline marker reaches the 8th spot, or a tribe reaches and then sacks Rome. So let's talk about the five tribes. The Anglo-Saxon and Franks, one tribe, Vandals, Huns, Visigoths, and Ostrogoths. They all start where they historically started, which is roughly the Eurasian steppes, and follow two paths of differing lengths, one of which leads to the city of Rome. They also roughly follow the historical paths. And here is our first break with regular pandemic. You see, these tribes aren't like diseases. They don't just pop up anywhere. They follow specific paths, so if during the Invade Cities phase, the cart for Ravenna is pulled for the Visigoths, but they haven't gotten there yet, then they just move to the next white city along their path. It's a predictable path, unless a revolt, this game's version of an outbreak, has occurred further down their path, but you always trace a line back to where the barbarians currently are. This allows for some strategic bottlenecking, similar to the water purification system in Pandemic Iberia. Here you can set up forts with armies. When a tribe's cube would be added to a city where an army is, that army is removed instead. Armies are also used with dice rolls and your player characters to remove the cubes from cities on your turn. If you roll a cube, you remove a barbarian cube. If you roll a legion, you just lost a legion. If you roll a Roman eagle, a special action occurs, good or bad, depending upon which character you have. Some characters are better at combat than others. As barbarians can't be quote-unquote cured, your goal here is to forge peace treaties with all the tribes at which point you can start recruiting those barbarians into your armies. But wait, where does that aforementioned corruption come into play? That's with the events. Each event has two options in it. The base option is pretty good on its own, but if you choose to corrupt Rome and push it further into decline, you may choose a much more powerful option. But you have to be careful with corruption, because when a city is going to receive a fourth cube, it gets sacked instead. This pushes a cube into adjacent cities and pushes Rome into further decline, and as mentioned above, when Rome reaches an 8th level of decline, you will lose. And yes, I've lost that way before. I've lost Pandemic Fall of Rome lots of ways. However, how I haven't lost is by Rome being sacked. It just hasn't happened to me yet. And I have to say, that's one niggle I have with the game. I really feel very little stress about the paths the barbarians are taking towards Rome. Some are so long and circuitous, it just doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, yeah, I'm normally raving about historical accuracy in games but I feel like maybe something should have been nudged a little here. And while we're at it, barbarians? Really? How about tribes? We just don't need the unnecessary baggage of terms like barbarians. Thanks. Many were very civilized, thank you very much, just in very different ways than Rome. So, would I recommend playing Pandemic Full of Rome? Yes. If you're the type of person who wants nothing more than to debate your favorite of the five good emperors, then sure. There's a lot for you to enjoy here, 
I was highly skeptical of how combat would work, but it works much better than I thought it would. And if you're looking for something a little different than the regular Pandemic, absolutely give this a try. Would I recommend buying Pandemic Fallout Rome? I just don't know. Take this as you will, but most of my plays have seemed more similar than most other versions of Pandemic that I've played. I don't know if that's because of the fort bottlenecking system, or because with the setup there's actually a subset of 9 cards that you use to set up those initial outbreaks, but each game has seemed a little bit repetitive. But maybe it's because this is a subgenre and, I don't know, this is my third of the special edition pandemics in a row. I guess I won't know until they announce what the next one is and I see what my reaction is to it. But until that happens, this has been Mike Grizzly. Peace. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Reiner Knizia's Indigo. I've talked about path-building games before. Back in episode 34, I discussed my complicated relationship with Dirk Hinn's Metro. I bring them up as a genre pretty often when considering other tile lane games or root builders. You're probably most familiar with Suro, that's T-S-U-R-O, a very popular and borderline mass-market implementation of the place a tile on the board to continue a path mechanism. I've played a number of these games, uh, Aqua Romana, Streetcar, Metro, and some others, but Indigo is both my favorite and probably the best in no small part because it's a Reiner Knizia game from Ravensburger. I assume that you, the board game podcast listener, are at least somewhat familiar with the good Dr. Knizia, but if the people you're in the car with are not, they only need to know that he is very, very famous and very, very good at designing board games. One of his strengths of the last decade has been the refining of other people's ideas. There's not much that feels wholly original or unique in Indigo, and for once that's a good thing. Instead of taking a basic mechanism and adding a bunch of stuff to it, Kinesia's power as a designer radiates from what he chooses to take away. In modern board game discourse, refinement and development get bandied around a lot by people who think they know what they're talking about. But these are often the same people waving the banners of bigger, longer, harder as indicators of a game's relative worth. That's of course not to say that many rules-heavy games aren't also highly developed, but a lot of people use refined or elegant as synonyms for I like it and it makes me feel smart for understanding how it works totally irrespective of how much refinement or development or simplification went into a title. Taking things away and working from restriction is almost always harder to execute well than adding new things to a big box of minis or a 500 card deck builder. But it's hard to get people excited about a brilliant new game that uses a traditional deck of cards, isn't it? Most of my favorite games aren't particularly complex, and Indigo strikes a great balance of low cognitive load, challenge, variability, and fun. So what's happening in Indigo? You are laying hex tiles to build routes from gems in the center of the board to gates at the edge of the board. As you lay tiles, the gems slide along the path you've made. You get to keep the gems you move out of your own gate, and the person with the most valuable gems at the end of the game is the winner. At two-player, which of course most of my plays have been, this is fairly straightforward. Each player alternates gates, and it's a tug-of-war with spaghetti to loop and unloop and redirect and block and steal from the other player. But at three and four, players share gates, and when a gem passes through a shared gate, both players are rewarded equally. So you can build alliances, shift loyalties, and try to keep mental track of who has what gems behind their screens. At 2, I usually find Indigo very relaxing, even though Megan and I are still playing competitively. There's something satisfying about a board full of beautiful tiles that will never come out the same twice. The game ends when all the gems are gone, and usually most, if not all, of the tiles have been placed when that happens. The result is a lovely mosaic board, and it's nice to look at even if you've lost. Eckhart Freytag and Walter Pepperell, both longtime Robinsberger artists, Illustrated Indigo in a vaguely Indian batik style, which certainly dips its toes into appropriation, but for a German game from 2012, it's surprisingly respectful in its use of theme. This is an abstract, no question. Although, the rulebook says, 
Indigo is a deep shade of blue obtained from the Indian indigo plant since ancient times. Its deep blue is a symbol of eternity and immortality. The color has a soothing effect and provides a clear head, which is exactly what players will need during the game as they search for the most precious gems. So that's a mix of like a vaguely unpleasant orientalism with the light veneer of a theme that you'd expect from a family abstract. I don't love it, but it's not egregious or anything. Opinions on the box size in Indigo are split, and I understand why. If you don't own other thin, long-box Ravensburger games, you're probably going to be pissed. The box is a weird size and shape for the components, and if you don't store it horizontally, which I don't because I'm not a monster, all the stuff falls out of the insert. This would bother me a lot if Indigo wasn't one of about a dozen other games I own in this older box format. For me, it fits perfectly on the shelf with my other Ravensburger and Uberplay titles. The components are good quality, though if you wanted to upgrade the plastic gems to glass, any old copy of Pente would do that nicely for you. Because it's a Robinsberger title, everything is linen finished, though the tiles are typically thin. I personally don't think that's a problem in this game, but people have been known to pitch a real fit over this issue. See every discussion about Castles of Burgundy and its components ever. Indigo is typically around $25 in the US, though it has gone on sale somewhat frequently in the past few years. I think we paid around $20 for it and have gotten more than our money's worth out of it. So who should buy Indigo? People who love tile lane games. People who love route building. People who want to explore network planning strategy in a simple and beautiful package. And people looking for a short, light, weeknight game to enjoy again and again. I give Indigo 8 out of 8 game mechanisms, made better because Reiner Kinesia published a version of them. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost, where I post about thrift stores, Star Trek, and weird bad games you've never heard of. Black Sonata is a quick, puzzly, solitaire deduction game set in Shakespeare's London. And that description hits everything I want in a game so much that when it launched on Kickstarter last year, I couldn't back it fast enough. Black Sonata was designed by John Keane, who also did the art, and originally published as a print-and-play in 2017. You can still download the print-and-play, or you can buy Black Sonata directly from the publisher, Sideroom Games. You'll get cards, nice wooden tokens, and a small board inside a tidy little box. Black Sonata has you searching Shakespeare's London for clues to the identity of the Dark Lady, the woman who was the subject of about two dozen sonnets. In real life, there's been much speculation about the Dark Lady, both scholarly and in popular culture. She even shows up in Doctor Who. But the real identity of the Dark Lady is not known and probably never will be. But Black Sonata gives you the chance to solve the mystery. The game has you traveling around a map of London, tracking the Dark Lady. She follows a path of program movement using a set of little cards. Each card has four letters printed in a row at the top and four at the bottom. During setup, you pick a position, say, top left, and sort all the cards so the letters at the top left are in order from A to Z, or from Z to A. The order of the deck determines her path through the game. This is such a clever mechanism to program the Dark Lady's movement with very little setup. And with 16 possible ways to order the deck, it's difficult to simply memorize her path around the board. During play, you go through the movement deck one by one, using symbols on the cards to guess where the Dark Lady is. Her movement is limited to one space at a time, but yours is too, so you can't just follow her around the board. You have to predict where she'll go next and get there at the same time. When you think you've found her, you can search for the Dark Lady by placing another card with a little hole shaped like a keyhole underneath the movement card. If you see her silhouette in the keyhole, you found her. But that's only part of the Black Sonata puzzle. Each time you find the Dark Lady, you draw a Dark Lady card, which has symbols representing her characteristics. Was she married? Was she creative or musically talented? Was there a documented link between her and Shakespeare? As an aside, 
The heart symbol means, was she promiscuous? And while I'm sure that's a very historically accurate way to look at it, I really wish the designer had reconsidered that word choice. One touch I do love in Black Sonata is that each Dark Lady card has the name of a real woman who's been the subject of Dark Lady speculation. Unfortunately, according to the rulebook, no images survive of most of these women, so the cards are illustrated with pictures of similar women from the era. The game also comes with a booklet of historical information about each of the women and each location on the map. Before beginning a game of Black Sonata, you set aside one of these Dark Lady cards, and the woman on that card represents the real Dark Lady, the one you're trying to identify. Each Dark Lady card has a clue to help you figure out the three symbols for the hidden, real Dark Lady. The game comes with wooden tokens for each symbol to help you keep track of your guesses. If you're certain of a symbol, you place it on the board, and if you eliminate a symbol, you flip it over. This is classic deduction. The more Dark Lady cards you uncover, the more clues you have and the easier it is to be certain of her identity. But there's a catch. Every time you search for the Dark Lady, whether you find her or not, two things happen. First, you have to discard that movement card and replace it with a fog card. Then she flees, meaning you skip ahead in the movement deck. This puts pressure on you not to search for the Dark Lady too often. For one thing, if you run out of fog cards or go through the movement deck too many times, you lose the game. But I've never lost that way. If you're reasonably good at deduction, you should be able to figure out the Dark Lady before you run out of cards. More important to me is that fog cards don't have the location symbol, so gumming up the movement deck with fog cards adds uncertainty to the deck. There's one place on the board that I find easiest to pin her down, but if I search every time she's there, I'll be pulling all the cards for that location out of the deck, making it much more difficult to find her later. My only minor quibble with Black Sonata is that, while the art and graphic design are lovely, I find the board a bit hard to read. It features text over a map of Elizabethan London, and I wish the map illustration had been screened back a bit to make the text more legible. Once you know where things are, it's not a problem, but my first couple of plays, I had real trouble reading the board. Some might be concerned that while the puzzle in Black Sonata is enjoyable, it is basically one puzzle. I appreciate the effort to add variation with 12 Dark Lady cards and multiple paths for program movement. You can remove clue cards to make the game easier or harder. Sorting the movement deck also adjusts the difficulty level as some of the paths are more challenging. But that said, there isn't a huge amount of variation from game to game in Black Sonata. If you need a lot of variety in your board games, this may be an issue for you. But it really isn't for me. I love games that are diverting a game that I can sit down and play to relax and unwind after work. Black Sonata fills that niche perfectly for me. And that's Black Sonata. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not on Eastcheap searching for the Dark Lady, I know she's Black Loose. I just know it. You can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Thanks for listening to The Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fivebygames. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on fivebygames.com. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.